Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Luke, chapter 13, verses 6 through 9. Then he told them this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went out to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming back and looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone just for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning, church. Well, I'm going to start out with an unpopular opinion. I'm glad Kip's back, okay? So I'm glad that he's here. Glad you're back in this place, and I'm glad to not be making podcasts anymore. I didn't know how to do that before, but I learned, okay? Uh, One other, or maybe two other shout-outs. Okay, the band was amazing this morning, and um, Kelly is back after being gone with Banksy, and Jasmine is back, original OG Antioch was back, sounding amazing, so it was fun to see both of them up there. Well, We are in week three in this season of the church calendar known as the season of creation. Uh, If you weren't here when we kicked off this series, you might be thinking to yourself, season of creation, that sounds made up. And uh, I'm here to tell you it's definitely a real thing. Uh, The practice began in 1989 when ecumenical patriarch Demetrios I proclaimed September 1st a a day of prayer for the environment. A few years later, a Lutheran congregation in Australia developed a four-week celebration of creation. The idea spread throughout Australia and beyond. Eventually, the Vatican picked up the practice, and the World Council of Churches promoted this new liturgical season. So we didn't make it up. And during this season of creation, we join in with Christians around the world as we recognize the theological centrality of God as the creator. We recognize the worth of creation itself, the human vocation for caring for creation and doing justice on behalf of the earth and for all of its inhabitants. More specifically, the title of our series this year is Speak to the Earth, which comes from the book of Job, and it says this, but ask the animals and they will teach you, or the birds in the sky and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish in the sea inform you. We join with scripture to say that from the rest of creation, we can see the hand of the creator, we can know the will of the creator, and we can experience the love of the creator. Creation has so much to teach us that Jesus himself told so many different parables and used illustrations that were based on things that he saw in nature. That's why in this series, we are looking at how we can listen to creation in the teachings of Jesus. In week one, we heard Pete talk about uh, when Jesus says to consider the birds, which is close cousins with, you know, consider the wildflowers. Jesus thought that we had a lot to learn from both of those things. 
Last week, our guest, David Bailey, spoke on the parable of the wheat and the weeds, one of the many agricultural examples used by Jesus. We know of the mustard seed. He talked about fish, vultures, fruit, vines, sheep, lilies, sparrows, and more. This type of stuff is all across the Bible because we are told in the beginning that creation is good and that creation declares the glory of God. Many of the early church fathers would say that God is known first through nature, and then only then can you learn more through doctrine and teachings. More recently, John Muir, he's a famous environmentalist and Christian, would say that his primary source for understanding God was the book of nature. Famously, he said that going to the mountains is going home, and that wildness is a necessity for each one of us. Or maybe you've heard of the term, uh, the Japanese term, shinrin-yoku. Anyone familiar with this? In English, we would call this forest bathing. And it's not as weird as it sounds, but uh, that spending time in nature is cleansing. It is good for your soul to be out amongst the rest of creation. I mean, shoot, what do you think Jesus was doing when he went up to the mountain to pray, right? He was forest bathing. He was spending time in creation. All to say in this season of creation, which we will conclude next week as we are hopefully having our Sunday service lakeside at Big Lake, which, by the way, has anyone checked the weather for next weekend? Okay. This is real wood. I know the guy who made it, so we're knocking on wood, hoping for good weather. We're going to continue asking this question. What does creation have to teach us? What did Jesus say about the rest of creation, which might illuminate something in our lives today? So today, we will do that by looking at a parable that Jesus tells about the fig tree that we just heard from Steve. And I do want to say one thing off the top. If after hearing this passage, or maybe you've read it before, and you are like, what does that even mean? Honestly, same. I am with you. Uh, It's confusing. It feels unfinished. It's strange. And so we are going to do our best to explore this tricky little parable together today. But in order to do that, we have to back up a few verses and understand the context before we understand the content of what Jesus talks about in this story. So we're in chapter 13 of the Gospel of Luke. We've already had, you know, we've played a lot of the hits already. We had the birth of Jesus, uh, ministry of John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, temptation of Jesus, and a bunch of chapters where Jesus has been doing the work of ministry in Galilee. And now he is on his way to Jerusalem. Uh, He'll stop by Mary and Martha's house and He'll continue teaching as he goes, stories that we know well, stories like the Good Samaritan, the mustard seed, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the prodigal son. Well, one of the stories he tells is our story here in chapter 13. Uh, But its immediate context is vital to understand what's going on. If you have a Bible open in front of you, you may notice that the beginning of chapter 13 has one of those little headers, you know, that we see in our Bible. They aren't always reliable. They're not a part of the original text, but this one is super peachy and positive. It says, repent or perish, (laughs) which I think coincidentally was actually the name of a band that Pete was in, but I'm not entirely (laughs) sure. But repent or perish. So we know that this is going to be a fun one, right? So, uh, Chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So again, Jesus, he is on the way to Jerusalem. He is with a big group of Galilean pilgrims making their way down there. And while he's on the way, he gets news that the place where he is going, which, by the way, is under enemy occupation by the Romans, 
In this place, the local governor has just not only killed a bunch of Jews in the temple, their most holy site, but specifically Galilean Jews. Probably not the best news to hear, and we don't know why it happened. We don't know what triggered Pilate to do this, uh, but it definitely would have affected Jesus in a couple ways. First, Jesus was a Galilean, right? The people that were killed were from, they're from his neighborhood. People he might have known, people he might have grown up with, or at least seen around. Secondly, as governor, Pilate, he represents Rome. And so this incident illustrates the threat of violence that was present at all times for these occupied people. We know Pilate, right? He, we know his eventual role in Jesus' execution. And Luke is setting the stage for the violence that is omnipresent at this time, but also setting the stage for how the way of Jesus is in direct opposition to that violence. But they aren't just telling Jesus about this news, they're, they're actually asking a question, and it's a question that we ask all the time too, and that question is, why? Why did this happen? Why did those people die? Why were they killed in the temple, and what is going to happen? So we see Jesus' response. He says, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. He goes on to cite another example in verse four. He says, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So again, more repenting, more perishing, everyone's favorite topic, but... This really is important for us to try and understand the parable of the fig tree because it can only be understood through this lens of repentance. At the time, the popular understanding of divine retribution presumed that punishments, especially catastrophes like these murders in the temple or a collapse of a tower, they were proportional to the crime or the sin that someone had committed. These things only happened to bad people or to sinners. They did X, so they deserved Y. And you might be judging yourself against them. Well, that didn't happen to me, which must mean I am doing something good. And Jesus says emphatically to that line of thinking, no. And so he does this for a couple reasons. One, he's making clear that the decisions of Pilate and Rome are not synonymous with God's justice. Luke frames this story Again, he's framing it against the violence of Rome, that that is in opposition to the way of Jesus, not in line with it. Secondly, Jesus is saying that bad events like these, they just happen. They're not a direct result of human iniquity or it's not a divine penalty for something that someone's done. They are unfortunate circumstances. They're not a measure of anyone's depravity or their holiness. These events are unpredictable and unchangeable, and Jesus says they are not in line with what you have done or what you have not done. And we might look at these folks and say, how silly of them to think that way, but I think if we are honest, we think that way sometimes too. If, oh, if I just do this good thing, then something good will happen to me in return. Or if I had just read my Bible more, then this bad thing wouldn't have happened. Or, oh, that happened to her? Well, I know some of the choices that she makes in her life. Or maybe this horrible thing wouldn't have happened if you'd just done more of the good things. Actions have consequences, to be clear, but in situations like this, there is no direct correlation. That's not how it works, says Jesus. 
But this parable, it ends up exploring these themes of repentance and explores uh, this idea of theodicy. Basically, how can God be good in the midst of so much evil? And Jesus, he doesn't quite dodge the question, but he does take it in a different direction. Just like those people that were traveling with Jesus, I have the same questions myself in the face of evil and tragedies and news stories about more gun violence or what happened in Lahaina or what happened in Morocco this weekend or refugees displaced by war or climate change. The question is, where is God in the midst of all this? Where is God in these horrible events? Where is God in these instances when we come to the realization of just how unpredictable life is, how quickly life can come to an end. But instead of answering maybe the question they want answered, Jesus turns the conversation to an issue uh, that we like to not talk about, repentance. Again, not the sexiest of conversations, but this is what this parable is about, repentance. It is a loaded word, it is a complicated word, one in which we as Christians have often misunderstood. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about the parable a little bit, we're gonna keep in mind this lens of repentance and we're gonna come full circle, talk about what Jesus really means by repentance. So as a reminder, the text says this, then he told this parable, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down, why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Now I wanna tell you a story and I have one disclaimer to offer. This is a true story. Um, all the stories I tell up here are true, but this one bears, I just really need a disclaimer because you're gonna think it's not a true story. So it is a true story. So. Um, Outside our now uh, less ugly building uh, here, there is a large maple tree. It's huge. Uh, we love it. And even as we've had uh, preliminary dreams about what this property could look like in the future, all of those dreams have included that tree. Well, I don't know if you've noticed it this year, but after winter, uh, this tree has really been struggling. Only a few of the branches have leaves. A lot of the tree honestly looks dead. Uh, and we were so confused. We were saying, you know, what is going on? Why is this happening? It's always been full of life since we moved in here and we just, we didn't know what to do. Is it dead? Is it alive? Does it have disease? If it is dead, do we need to cut it down so it's not a safety hazard, right? So we called an arborist uh, to come look at it. It was actually pretty amazing. He threw some ropes way up the tree and then just pulled himself up there. I was like, High school gym class, I cannot do that, right? And uh, he dug in there, he kind of went into the top of the tree and he examined it, and this is what he said. He said, I can't tell you right now if the tree is savable, but here's what you need to do. You need to water it like crazy, and in the fall, I'm gonna come back, I'm gonna dig around it, and I'm gonna fertilize it. And then if it sprouts leaves everywhere next spring, we'll know if it's alive. <laughs> if, if not, we can cut it down then but give it one more year. <laughs> that is totally 100% true, totally true. Ask Calvin, he was there for this conversation. So if you ever need gardening advice, the Bible is the first place you need to go, okay? <laughs> Our grass struggled a bit this year, so I'm trying to find something in there. And uh, so weird, so weird, right? So you might be asking yourself, why is there a fig tree in a vineyard, okay? That doesn't totally make sense. 
Well, at the time, it was common practice to plant fig trees in vineyards uh, so that the vines would have a, tr a natural trellis to grow on. So that was why they did that. But even more than that, it's important to note that there are no non-symbolic trees in the Bible. The fig tree is considered the most fruitful tree of that area. It was an emblem of the golden age of Israel's history. Fig trees, they're scattered across our narrative of scripture when Adam and Eve clothed themselves for the first time. You remember what that was with? Fig leaf, right? Uh, people of Israel were sometimes described as the figs on the fig tree. And talking about uh, the coming age of the Messiah when everything will be set right, uh, Micah 4, among a few other places in scripture, says, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. Actually, George Washington loved this vision for the future so much, he is said to have quoted this particular passage in speeches and letters more than 50 times about what this new nation of America could look like, where everyone could sit under their own fig tree and not be afraid. The verse immediately preceding this one in Micah 4 is, was actually the inspiration for our Guns to Garden initiative that we just watched that video for. Then this age of the Messiah, swords will be turned into plowshares. All that to say, the fig tree is not just any tree. It's emblematic of God's people, especially in the flourishing age of the Messiah and in the reconciliation of all things. But for some reason, in our story, it's not producing fruit. And we don't know why. It could be that the tree is too young. It could be that it's not been tended properly. It could be that it's not getting enough water, that it's getting too much water. The gardener may not be pruning it properly or tending to the soil. Uh, we found out we weren't watering our tree enough. Whoops. Um, we don't know why the fig tree is not producing, but in this parable, the important thing is it's not producing. And so the owner has come to look at the tree for three years in a row and has found it to merely be taking resources rather than producing any fruit. And fruit also is a theme that comes up throughout the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 3, uh, John the Baptist talks about the fruit of repentance. Uh, he even says that the ax is ready for the trees that do not produce fruit. In the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6, Jesus states that a good tree produces good fruit, and similarly a good produ person produces good from the goodness of their heart. In the parable of the sower in Luke 8, Jesus explains that those with good hearts hear the word of God, hold fast to it, and patiently produce fruit. So with those examples in mind and with our text today, it seems that the fig tree represents the human heart. And all throughout the Gospel of Luke, this theme of repentance is consistently repeated, and we don't tend to fully grasp it. Whether uh, we've been taught it explicitly or not, for many of us, we tend to think of repentance as feeling sorry for one's personal sin. I am sorry for what I have done. I should feel bad about that thing that I did, and I need to say sorry. So repentance for us can become uh, saying sorry and moving on with our lives. And that idea can certainly be a part of repentance, but in the Bible, repentance is much larger than that. When Jesus uses the word for repent, it means to change one's mind. It's a term, actually it's been translated from Hebrew into Greek, but in Hebrew the core of its meaning is actually to return or to go back or even to go home. And so the idea being when Jesus talks about repentance that when you change your mind, you go back to your true home in God. You go back to thinking and entering into the world the way in which God thinks and enters the world. 
throughout the narrative of Luke and even into its uh, accompaniment in Acts, to repent is to turn away from the assumptions and attitudes and actions of the old age or the old self and to live towards the values and practices of the kingdom of God as taught by Jesus and embodied in the life of the newly formed church. So yes, repentance is personal, but in the Bible it often contains a corporate element and an element of moving in the opposite direction. It's often described as individuals and communities turning away from things that, guile, uh, that violate God's purposes like idolatry or injustice or exploitation, exploitation or selfishness, but that is only step one in repentance. Step two is to turn towards faithful living centered in worship of the Most High God, lived out with devotion, lived out with love, lived out in the practice of justice, lived out in harmony with others and producing good fruit. So if the context for when Jesus originally said this parable was the questions about why certain people had a certain faith, these, these questions of evil, uh, Jesus kind of gives us the ultimate Jesus juke here. He says, don't think about it that way. He says, instead, think about you and your own need for repentance. Jesus, he doesn't pull the prosperity gospel move either and say that if you follow this path that you will be free from calamity. But he says, no, this is what you need to think about. You need to think about your own need for repentance. Don't think about false assurances that everything is going to be okay. He recognizes that life is fragile, but it does demand urgency in the midst of opportunity. So rather than focusing on the gravity of others tran other transgressions or mistakes, which we are all want to do, Jesus says to instead think about how you are producing good. Don't try to ascribe blame to certain situations or punishments or rewards or any of that. Don't think about others. He says, ensure that you are not missing your own fruit. Are you missing fruit? That is what you need to pay attention to. That other stuff and those other people, you can't control that. You can't control them. But what you can control is your heart and the fruit that comes from it. Now, we have a book at home that Penny loves for us to read to her before bed, and it's called What is God Like? Maybe you've read it too to your kids. It's a great book. And uh, the premise of the book is that very question in the title, what is God like? And it says, that is a very big question that people from places all around the world have wondered about since the beginning of time. And while nobody has seen all of God, because God is far too big for any of us to fully see, we can know what God is like. And it lists all these things from scripture that we can know about God, that God is like an eagle, God is like a fort, God is like three dancers, God is like the wind, a mother, a father. But Penny's favorite one is where it says this. It says, God is like a gardener, patient and nurturing. God plants, waters, weeds, and fertilizes the earth until every good thing on it seeks the nourishing sun and grows. And I think... She likes this one and she gets this one uh, because we have a garden in our backyard that Penny loves to work on. I, I brought a couple photos. There's our part of our broccoli haul. And then we also had a lot of extra basil. So Penny went around the neighborhood with her shopping cart and delivered basil uh, to our neighbors. And it's because of the care that we put into our garden as a family and mostly Julia. Um, but because of this, Penny knows a little bit of what God is like. 
And as we go through our lives and try to answer the question of what is God like, we can see in this parable that God is like a gardener. And what does the gardener do in this story? He counsels patience and mercy. You know what else he doesn't say? He doesn't say, the tree better figure this all out on their own. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give them a year. If things are not settled by then, you know, it's fine. No, the tree has not been left to its own devices. The gardener is willing to do everything that is required to get the tree to a healthy place, to get it to act as it should, to help it produce fruit. And just like the gardener in the story, Jesus is patient with us. He will do what we need to help us grow. Because God does not leave us on our own or tell us to rely on our own resources. He is willing to be patient. He is willing to care for us. He is willing to water us and to give us the opportunity to seize his graciousness. But as Jesus makes it, Jesus makes it clear two times leading up to this parable, the part that we have to play is one of repentance. Not a shallow repentance or one that's overly focused on morality or expressions of regret. What we see here, along with many other places in the Bible, is that it refers to a changed mind, a new way of seeing things, uh, being persuaded to adopt a different perspective. Repentance is not only about more expressions of piety, but it is a new way of entering into the world and its arcs towards joy. It's about an entirely reoriented self, one that is now oriented towards God's kingdom. And so I wonder for you and for each one of us here today, what is it that you might need to change your mind about today? What are the areas of your life that you are holding on to that might need to be reoriented to God's kingdom way? Could it be in your relationships? Could it be with how you think about work or how often you work? Could it be with your finances? Could it be with how generous you are? Might there be an idol in your life taking away devotion to God in one of those things? Could it be how you think about civic engagement? Could it be in complicity to injustice? I know that I can answer some form of yes to all of those questions for me, so it might be good to seek discernment where God might be speaking to you today and want to change your mind. And in light of us observing this season of creation, we might just start this journey of repentance for how we have treated and neglected and abused the rest of God's good creation. Whether we've done so knowingly or in ignorance, we have been complicit in our abuse of the land and of our neighbors. There are a few uh, Oregonian pastors and professors up at George Fox. Their names are Jennifer Butler, Daniel Bruner, and A.J. Swoboda. And uh, they wrote a lot about this topic and they argue that the only way that things can improve is through a radical spiritual change in our hearts and our communities. They say we must develop a new way of seeing the world and the archetype for the radical response that is needed is found in the Bible as repentance. That as we change our minds, whether it is from intentional abuse or overconsumption or just not thinking that ecological living is a Christian imperative or important to our faith, we have to choose to be continually converted, to repent of our participation in perpetuating the crisis and respond with acts of healing. They put it like this, whenever Christians and Christian communities repent for our trespasses against the earth, we also ought to be engaging in actions of restitution, 
From planting gardens to rideshare programs for worship gatherings, Christ's followers are finding creative ways to practice restitution. If dry earth, bellowing cattle, and withering vines are a sign of humanity's sinfulness against the land, perhaps water conservation projects, content chickens in the coop, and flowering gardens are signs of repentance, restitution, and conversion. So when we do things like turning guns into garden tools and use those tools to provide food for our neighbors, that is what repentance looks like. Taking something that was heading in one direction, heading towards violence and turning it around and sending it in the other way and providing restitution and reconciliation, something meant for harm and in light of God's kingdom, turning it into something that builds and grows. Repentance is necessary for our complicity and complacency, for our explanations and for our enabling. If our repentance doesn't move beyond saying sorry to living a life of restoration and reconciliation, we might just be missing the mark. And for me, repentance can be a scary word, probably you too, you know, especially when it says in bold letters, repent or perish. But when I can give it handholds, even in this one area, it doesn't sound as scary to me. It doesn't sound as undaunting or undoable. Like our tree outside, maybe we have had seasons where we are green and full of life and producing fruit, where our hearts and our lives reflect the kingdom of God. But sometimes we look like that tree does right now, a little sad, a little unhealthy, and not doing what we were made to do. But Jesus doesn't count us out because I know that as we take these steps of repentance, Jesus the gardener will be there right along the way with water and fertilizer, making us new again. So, Antioch family, may we be a people of repentance as we join our hands with God the gardener to make all things new. Amen.